Uh, we're in the middle of a, a book study that we're doing all year for the rest of the year, the New Testament book of Galatians. And I got to tell you, I said last week, last week was a very difficult passage. This week is probably one of the more, if not most important passages in all of Galatians, some consider in all of the New Testament. We're going to spend almost all of our time here today right now in, in one verse. And, and you, you're going to be thinking, well, how can you preach on one verse? You will see. And, and we're barely going to scratch the surface of it. But the surface that we scratch is really, really life-changing. So let's do this. Let's bow together, and then we're going to dive into the Word. Cactus and venue, would you bow with me as well? God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace and for Your mercy, for who You are to us and for all that You are to us. And God, I pray that as we open up Your book now, the truth that You have preserved for us, that, Lord, we would certainly not take it lightly, but that, Lord, we would plumb the depths as best we can as to what You have revealed to us, and then, Lord, our commitment back is to live this out and to go into our Monday through Saturday worlds and become doers of the Word, not just hearers. So, Lord, with that said, we pray that you'd bless this time. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see that which you have prepared for us. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. So I want to ask you a loaded question as we go into our time this morning. And the question is simply this. How do we actually live the Christian life? I know you've thought about it. How do we actually live the Christian life? How does a person walk with God in such a way that we tap into the power of the Holy Spirit, commune with the Son, Jesus Christ, know God the Father in such a way that we are victorious, not defeated, ahead of the curve, not behind the curve, and as Jesus would say, to the point that rivers of living water are flowing through us. I know that's a good question to ask because there are so many times when we don't feel like rivers of living water are flowing through us. There are plenty of times where we don't feel the abundant life is upon us. And yet Jesus promised us that if we can walk with Him, again, abide in the vine, abide in Him, that that, that would be what was happening. So it's a great question to ask, how do we walk with God in such a way, how do we live the Christian life in which we're firing on all eight cylinders spiritually and relationally when it comes to God. You know, it's interesting. If you listen to the average sermon or read the average Christian book today or listen to the average radio preacher, and you spend maybe a year doing that, if you were foreign to Western Christianity in the Western part of the world, you would eventually hear this from what we're telling people. You would hear that you need to have a daily quiet time, 10 to 30 minutes of Bible reading and prayer, that you need to attend church regularly, join a Bible study, small group, or Sunday school class, serve others through some formal ministry opportunity, give money to needy causes, the church being high on that list, obey the Bible's commands as best you can, share your faith with the lost people around you. And through a combination of any, actually what they mean is all of these activities, if you do them long enough and consistent enough, then you'll eventually arrive at Christian maturity, or at the very least, you will feel close enough to God that you are more in than out when it comes to Him. And that's the message that we basically have sent to Christians in America, really in the western half of the world, that if you just do a bunch of religious activities, attend a bunch of things, have your own quiet time, things like that, then eventually it's all going to add up together and lead to Christian maturity. It's just that I have tried that now for 30 some odd years, and though I'm a big fan, obviously, of going to church, 
I'm a big fan of having quiet times. I'm a big fan of serving, a big fan of small groups, a big fan of giving and being generous. I'm a big fan of all that. I know too many people that check off all of those things on their to-do list, and you know them too, and they don't seem to be more faithful. They don't seem to be more loving. In other words, there's nothing magical about just doing all of these correct activities that will lead to Christian maturity. But we hope they will. But the point is, is that we can do all the activity we want and even believe certain things we want, and they can necessarily still leave us dry when it comes to our goal, and that's living waters flowing in and through us, the abundant life. So I'm not suggesting here this morning that we don't do those things. I'm simply suggesting that there has to be more to living the Christian life than just conforming to a bunch of outward behaviors that we are told to do. There has to be something that happens inside of us in what the great spiritual writers of the past have labeled the interior life if we're ever going to walk with God in such a way that matters. I'm suggesting to you this morning that the most important stuff that can happen to you spiritually happens between you and God where nobody else sees in the deepest recesses of your soul and it might happen in a quiet time, it might happen in a Bible study, it might happen in a small group, it might happen while you're serving, but not necessarily. That the reality is, is that you have a choice of whether you're going to do life on God's terms and start to walk with Him in such a way that He wants you to or not. And so if that interests you at all, if you're interested in taking a deeper look this morning at what's involved in really, truly walking with God, aside from just outward conformity to a bunch of to-do lists, then you're ready for the next verse in the New Testament book of Galatians. Because it's at this point in our study of Galatians that the Apostle Paul pulls no punches in laying out for us what the core of the Christian life is. And I'll warn you right now, it's going to involve the way that you think, the way that you carry, the mindset you carry around with you each moment of each day, as well as as it's going to involve your daily journey, some decisions that you have each moment of each day that will emanate deep from within your soul, again, the interior life. So what am I talking about? Cody read the verse earlier, but it's worth reading again. Turn to Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 to 21. And let's read together. You just follow along as I read. This is really important stuff. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, some of you don't know this, but verse 20 here of Galatians 2 has been one of the most analyzed, studied, and talked about verses in all of the Bible for the last 2,000 years now when it comes to how you and I are to live the Christian life, how we walk with God in such a way that His love and His power and the ability to defeat sin and overcome difficulties and forgive those who hurt us, all that stuff rolled together can become realities for us as we walk with God. And again, I just want to point out, isn't it interesting? And every passage in the Bible would be the same way when it talks about what the core of walking with God entails. There's no mention here of going to church, giving money, serving in a soup kitchen, joining a small group, learning to share the four spiritual laws, as good as all those things might be. No, what the Bible is more concerned about is what's happening in your soul. 
what's happening in your interior life, what's going on between you and God each moment of each day. And so it's interesting. The, the, the uh, outline that we're going to use today is simply going to be, and you'll notice on your notes, a stated reality that Galatians 2.20 gives us here, a reality that you must affirm if you're ever going to get any traction in your walk with God, and then a daily journey, a daily decision that you and I make each day when it comes to, as you'll see in a minute, where our soul is focused. So first, notice with me the stated reality that you and I must embrace, and it's simply this, and that is that Jesus' death gives you life. Jesus' death gives you life. Let me ask you one of two loaded questions that I'm going to ask you this morning. Cactus and Venue, I ask you as well. Do you believe that statement? Do you believe that statement? And if you dare answer yes to that, I'd ask you a quick follow-up question, and that is what do you think it means then when it affirms here that Jesus' death is the source of your life? I think that's a critical question. Uh, first half of Galatians 2.20 says it this way. This affirms that we're on to something here. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So clearly there's a death-life motif going on here. Something about Jesus' death and our participation with it, even though it happened 2,000 years ago, is linked to our life and even Christ's life in us. Whoa! Now, let's try to do a deep dive in what this might be talking about here. You will notice that this is actually giving us two or dual stated realities here of what is true for us in Christ that add up to one big reality. And the first reality is contained in those six opening words where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, what does that mean? I sometimes bore you with the etymology of Greek words. I know I bore some of you because I can tell as soon as I give you what a Greek word means, you look at your watch or your PDA, which is so sinful in church to do. But anyways, you'll do that. And I, and I can tell that's what. So I prepare you for that, that if you thought that's boring, then check this out. But this is really life-giving. That phrase, have been crucified, in the original Greek that Galatians was written in, is in what we call the first person singular, perfect tense with a passive voice in the indicative mood. <laughs> you see, why does that matter? It matters greatly. And just so that you can follow along with that, look up here on the screen. I put it up there for you in, in white text. This is in the first person singular. Why is that important? Because whatever he's saying here, it's between you and God. Isn't that awesome? There's no we in this. I have been crucified with Christ. So this is right now a moment, an intimate moment, between you and God, whatever it's saying here. Then notice that it's in the perfect tense. In the Greek, the perfect tense is this. It's an event in the past with continual results in the present. Isn't that interesting? So here, it's talking about I have been crucified with Christ, Christ's death in the past, that somehow is going to have results for you in the present. And then it's in the passive voice. This is very important. The passive voice is different from an active voice. A passive voice is an action put upon someone by somebody else. So an active voice would be an action you did. So if this was an active voice, it would say, I crucified. 
I did this, I did that. No, we translate saying, I have been crucified. The implication being, this was done for you and to you by somebody else, obviously in this case, Christ. And then it's in the indicative mood, which simply means it's factual. It, it pertains to reality. This is not an analogy, it's not a metaphor, it's not a word picture. This is a reality. So add all of this up. What it's saying is that when Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago as a substitute for our sin, to forgive us our sin before Almighty God, it wasn't just him dying. It's telling us here that for all who believe in him, we died too when Jesus died. We were crucified with him. As theologians would say, we participated with him in his death. Even that word, have been crucified in the original Greek, is the same word used. It literally means co-crucified, and it was used when it described the two thieves that were crucified with Jesus on either side of them. They were literally crucified with Jesus. And it's saying that we too, as followers of Jesus, have been crucified with him. And again, this isn't a metaphor. It's not a word picture. Some people try to say, well, isn't this a nice little equation he's drawing here? No, it's not. It's not a nice little anything. This is a spiritual, literal reality that the believer has died with Christ. We participated in his death. We died 2,000 years ago with him the moment we came to believe in him. Now, once you get that far, the obvious question becomes next, died to what? Right? Died to what? Well, that's the easy one. You died to your own sin that always seems to get best, the best of you. You died to your fallen flesh that always seems to war against you. You died to the stranglehold of the law, all those do's and don'ts that you can't seem to keep. You died to the pull and lure of this world and its ways, all of it. Anything that would and could keep us from God and living the life he wanted to, don't miss this, we have now died to. I have been crucified with Christ. And the most important thing to realize here is that this is a stated reality of your condition in Jesus Christ, which simply means that if you are a believer in Christ, this is what theologians call a positional reality. It's true about you simply by being in Christ. It doesn't go up and down on how you feel. It doesn't even go up and down on whether you know this or not or even living here or not. Simply by being a Christian, the Bible says you've been crucified with Christ. You see, I think this adds a lot of meat to our salvation, doesn't it? Most people think that when they accept Christ and get saved, it's like, okay, I'm now got heaven guaranteed, and, you know, I can start having my quiet time and going to church, and I got a new relationship with Jesus. All that is true. But a lot more happened when you became a Christian than you might realize. The moment you became a Christian, God looked at you and said, you are now dead to the things of this world. You are dead to your own sin. You are dead to your fallen nature. Why? Because you've been now crucified with Jesus Christ. But it's interesting. It doesn't stop there. There's a second stated reality here as well, and this one's really positive, and that is, as he goes on to say, and so it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So not only did you die to Jesus or die to sin when you placed your faith in Jesus, but Galatians firms a second stated reality, and that's that Jesus now lives in you 
And again, that's not an analogy or metaphor. That's a literal reality as his life now, complete with his power, flows in and through you. So isn't that fascinating? It's not just a death motif that is a core part of your salvation, but a life motif. Jesus' resurrection power is now in play in your very life. And again, some people try to say, well, in that nice little word picture, you know, Jesus lives in me. No, it's a, it's a huge stated reality. Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 14, verse 23, when he said, if anybody loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. Now, here it is, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So put this together. The stated reality that is true about you as a believer in Christ is that Jesus' death gives you life. Why? Because you died with him, and he now lives in you. And as we're going to see in just a minute here, you must bank on that each moment of each day to the degree that you truly believe that and embrace that in your life is to the degree that you are ready to walk with him. But if you ignore that reality and somehow say, well, that's not really true about me, then it's to the degree that you will not have rivers of living water flowing in and through you. You know, sometimes when I talk about these positional realities that are true for believers, I can tell by the the look people give me that they're just not really dialing into this. Not you, Steve, but I can just tell by the look that some people give me that that, that they're kind of going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it just seems so, you know, kind of ethereal and subjective and just sort of out there. And, you know, I I I can't really relate to that, a positional reality, a stated reality. But the truth is, is that we really can relate to this. You have experiences with this all the time in your daily human living. You really do. Raise your hand here if you're married today or have been married. Let's see your hand raised. Don't deny it. Raise your hand here if you're married. So for those of you who have been married in Cactus and Venue, for those who have been married, you know that, that you got married, say, like Kim and I did on a Saturday afternoon, and you said your I do's. And then you went and had your honeymoon, and the very next day you woke up, and think about it, the next day when you woke up, you were still pretty much the same person. I mean, you hadn't gained 40 pounds yet, and, and, and you hadn't even had your first fight yet, and you, you really haven't changed all that much as a person, because it's only been 24 hours. But the very next day you woke up, there was something very positionally true about your life, something very changed about your life, a new stated reality about your life. And that is that your life was not your own, positively speaking. Your life was now knit together, as the Bible would say, one flesh with another person. And from this point on, everything's going to be different, right? A stated reality that's true about you. Or or how about if you got promoted at work? Sometimes, you know, on Friday, very rarely, the boss will come into somebody's office and say, you know what, on Monday, uh, I'm promoting you. And on Monday, man, you're going to have this new responsibility, these new direct reports, and we're going to be looking at you differently. And and so on Monday, get ready, because it's promotion time. Now, let me ask you a question. In the two intervening days between Friday and Monday, are you going to raise your IQ by 50 to rise up to this new position? Probably not. Are you going to go to 1,000 seminars to learn to be a better manager? Probably not. In other words, you're going to walk into the office Monday pretty much the same person you were when you walked out Friday. But there's a new stated reality, a new position that you need to be aware of if you're ever going to do your job right. Does that make sense? And see, God says it's the exact same thing with your salvation. The moment you got saved, there was a lot more going on there than meets the eye, a lot more than you might have realized. 
You are now dead to sin. You've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer you who live, but he lives in you. That's the reality of the Christian experience. So once we get this, the question becomes, what do we do with this? I mean, some of you are thinking, this is a great theology lesson for Sunday, but I'm going into my Monday through Saturday world, so what do I do with this? And that's a great question to ask. And that brings us to the second thing that we need to look at this morning, and I'm going to call this the daily journey, and Galatians 2.20 is about to turn the corner for us here. Let me give you the principle first, then we'll look at the passage. Here's your daily journey based on the stated reality, and that is that your ongoing faith in Jesus combined with your death to self, we'll define that, unleashes Jesus' life in you. You want to know how to live the Christian life? Here it is. Your ongoing faith in Jesus, combined with your death to yourself, unleashes the life of Jesus, as we've already established, is in you. So look at how verse 20 will go on to say this, the second half of it. After giving us the stated reality, it says this, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, this is very important. We know that he's switching gears here and talking about our daily journey because of those opening words where he says, the life I now live in the flesh. Quick Bible lesson. When the Bible uses that word flesh, which is the Greek word sarks, in 50% of the times, it means something negative. Your sinful nature, your flesh, the things that get in the way of your spiritual life. But the other 50% of the times, the word is used in a more neutral sense to simply mean your physical bodily life, your mundane everyday life, this side of heaven. And what's fascinating about that is that every Bible expert I consulted in preparation for today clearly says that in the context here, it's referring to our normal everyday life in the flesh. So what Paul is doing here is switching gears for us, saying, okay, I've given you the stated reality. Now, here's what you need to do each moment of each day. The life I now live in the flesh, and notice that the primary thing that he says we must do each day in the flesh is that we live by faith in the Son of God, who obviously is Jesus. We live by faith in Jesus. I said to you earlier, I'm going to ask you two loaded questions. Here's the second one. What does it mean to live by faith? And what does this involve? Again, I think we use that phrase all the time. I live by faith, I live by faith, I live by faith. I'm not sure most Christians have any clue (laughs) what it really means to live by faith. And the reason that I know that is I think most of us assume that we are living by faith. The reason I know that is because no one ever comes to me and confesses that they're not living by faith. I I haven't anybody yet in this year, and we're almost half over, come to my office and say, Pastor, I just got to confess to you, I'm not living by faith. Would you pray for me? No one ever does that. And everybody I talk to, and I ask them, are you living by faith? And I'll ask people that every once in a while, well, of course I am. But then sometimes a wise Christian will say, what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, define your terms, which I think is a good thing to do. So here we go. I would submit to you that at the very least, as we stay in the context of this verse, that living by faith must involve dying to self and then living to God in Christ each moment of each day. At the very least, it has to mean that. Because we just looked at a stated reality that said, I've been crucified. And it's no longer, and now I live, and he lives in me. 
So at the very least, when he says that we live by faith, it has to involve that death life motif. It's just that now he's insinuating that death to self and living to God in Christ is a moment-by-moment decision. Are you catching that? The life I now live in the flesh. Each moment of each day, every thought, every choice, every feeling, every decision, every relational interaction I have, something needs to happen inside of me if I'm ever going to walk with God. Something needs to happen in my interior life where only God and I can see. Remember, I, first person singular, where only God and I can see. And what is it that happens? An unwavering trust in Christ. What Brennan Manning, when he was alive, called a ruthless trust, where we put all of our confidence, all of your weight goes on Jesus Christ. Not yourself, not your world, not your family, not your society, not your money, not your job, not our government, or whatever else you might be tempted to put your trust in, but Christ. And as we trust and rest in Christ each moment of each day, while simultaneously dying to ourselves, I've been crucified with Christ, then God says you're starting to live the Christian life in such a way that you just might see my power and my love unleashed in and through you. Unless you wonder that this is what this is really saying here, look at how Jesus affirmed this identical thought in Matthew 16, 24, and 25, a famous statement of his. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, again, death, and follow me, life. For whoever would save his life is going to have to lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Don't miss this. It's the death and life theme of our stated reality, but this time playing out in our daily journey. And how does it play out? It takes radical faith. What Andrew Murray, a great devotional writer of about 100 years ago, calls absolute submission of you and I somehow getting to the point in our heart of hearts where we die to our fallen nature, the self-centered aspects, self-centered aspects of ourself, and we live to God through a resting, leaning, trusting kind of faith. And what you need to know, and this is so cool, because this tells us Rhonda something here, is that every great Christian writer of the last 2,000 years has eventually tapped into this, and they write about it. Augustine, Calvin, Luther, Wesley, This transcends all Christian traditions. And they all write about what it might mean for you and I to get to the point in our faith where we stop playing games, where we stop just conforming to a bunch of outward behaviors that are good behaviors, but if they don't have heart behind it, they're not going to do us any good. And we start getting to the point where we say, I get it, God. It's death to me and life to you time when it comes to my walk with you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was that famous German pastor who died at the hands of the Nazis in World War II. He wrote a very famous book called, (laughs) what was it, Cost of Discipleship. And look up here on the screen as to what Bonhoeffer says. This is good stuff. He says, to deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. To see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is, he leads the way, keep close to him. That's the idea, folks. I like how Annie Lamott says it in more modern-day language. She says, God can't clean the house of you when you're still in it. So maybe that helps some of you. 
Larry Crabb would say it this way. He says that before you can attach to God, you need to detach from yourself. You need to detach from this world. You need to detach from all the things that are keeping you from attaching to God. You've got to have both. And yet all I can tell you, folks, is that when you begin to do this, look out. Because the things that you thought were impossible before now become realities of God's power and his love as they are infused in you, as you now experience the life of Jesus, who does live in you, flow in and through you. I'm telling you, we're onto something here. Let me give you some examples. One of the hardest things for Christians to do, I find this ironic, by the way, you've got to laugh at this. One of the hardest things for Christians to do is forgive other people. You ever notice that? Gosh, we hang on to things way too long. I mean, I see it in church, I see it in families. And and what's ironic about it is, is that the central truth claim of the Christian life is that we've been forgiven by Jesus. So you would think that if any group of people on planet Earth could be the first ones in line to say, I forgive, it would be us. But it's not. We tend to be the people who have a lot of trouble forgiving. I get that, but it breaks my pastoral heart. But I get it. I I get that we're a very intense, highly wound group of people. And, and, And so how do you forgive a deep hurt? Well, here's what the Bible says. You need to die to some certain things inside of you, which are like bitterness and the desire for revenge. You need to die to that. And then you need to trust in Jesus' power through you to actually forgive others through you. I'm telling you, this works. no No one more than me has been very angry at Christians or people who've hurt me. I mean, pastors are like one big target, Right? So I, I've been hurt by it. I don't want to warn you guys about it, but I, I, I get letters in which I go, ouch, that hurt. That attacked my character. That attacked this. I get people who come against me. I, I get all of that in the pastorate. So there's times where I'm driving home, and I'm driving down the freeway, and I'm thinking, if I wasn't a pastor, <laughs> I do. And you guys know I'm intense, and I'm passionate. Well, take that passion, put anger in it, and it's a mess. And I can get that way at times. So what do I do when that happens? I'm telling you. I get in the right lane. I put the cruise on. I set it at about 60. And I just start to pray. And I said, God, I am not going to allow bitter. I need to die to my desire to take control, to be vengeful, to, to do this. I die to that. And then I do this. And this is the real trick. And I say, God, I don't have it in me to forgive that person. I just don't. But you do. And you live in me. And by faith, I ask you to be my power to forgive that person. And some of you are saying, does that work? We'll talk about how it works in a minute, but yes, it does. Stay in that place long enough. Claim by faith long enough him who lives in you, and you will find he will do that for you. How about job loss? You know, when people went through these awful job losses about four years ago during the recession, you know, people said, Jamie, how how do I even handle this? Well, again, you need to die to your desire for worry control and fear, which is exactly what happens when our lives get shaken, and then you need to trust in God's absolute provision and care for your life. He knows you need a job. He cares for you, and he's going to provide for you, but you have to trust that. Are you seeing the stated reality? How about grieving the loss of a loved one? Again, what do you do when when you're grieving it? You feel so empty at the loss of somebody that you've journeyed with so long in life that it's almost hopeless. What do you do with that? Well, first thing you do is you die to the hopelessness of our world's view of death because it's all around us. First Thessalonians 4 says, we do not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. 
we grieve. It's just that we grieve with a tremendous amount of hope. And that's the second part. You trust that when Jesus said that in his house there are many rooms, and that if it were not that so, I would have told you, you bank on that with everything in you, and you grieve in a healthy way. Or, or lastly, how about dealing with damaged emotions, anger, depression, anxiety? This is the real trick for all of us. You know what? We live in a culture today in which we are fed this Kool-Aid that tells us that we should always have a right to feel good. You ever notice that? I mean, therapy is like a billion-dollar industry in the United States. We are, we are convinced that we have a right to feel good. Just comb the Bible. You won't find that one. So you and I need to die to our right to always want to feel good. That might help us deal with some of our anxiety and depression. And then submit that to God and watch him comfort us and use us even in the midst of our messed up lives. Are you getting the picture? The way that you and I live the Christian life is through death to self and then a radical faith in him in which we watch him move in and through our very souls. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, but Jamie, I, I, I've tried this. It's too hard. I've tried and I've failed. I mean, I've tried to put aside my anger, my worry, my damaged emotions, and I've tried to muster up more faith and trust, and it just never seems to be enough. I, I just can't seem to get to the tipping point that puts me in that sweet spot that you and Galatians 2 were talking about. You ever found yourself saying that? I, I, I have. Let's be honest. There's times where I just get so frustrated in trying to do this. I say, God, I've been trying to do this for 30 years, and it doesn't always seem to work. What's up with that? And I want to be very careful how I give you the biblical response to this, because God does have an answer for this. It's just that we don't always like the answer. And what God says is that the problem is almost always associated with a growth problem in our ability to truly embrace the stated reality of our position. I have been crucified with Christ and then learning what it means to fully surrender our very selves to Jesus. In other words, it goes back to when I asked you, what is your definition of living a life of faith? See, we think it's a lot easier than it is. Give me a head nod that we all understand that. We think it's easy. I remember years ago, I was driving down the road with Abby when she was like four years old. And she said, you know, Dad, what, do I, what does it take to, 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 to come to Jesus? I said, well, you got to place your faith and trust in him. And I'll never forget a four-year-old. She looked at me and said, well, that's easy. She goes, I just think it, and then I do it. <laughs> and I thought, just wait, kid. That ain't going to happen all your life. I just thought, it's not that easy. You don't just think it and do it. It's very difficult to live a life of faith in which each moment you're surrendering to him. But even think of our language. I've tried this. I've tried that. I did this. I did that. I mustered up this. I think when we start saying that, you know what God says? He says, I thought you were dead. <laughs> dead people don't use the word I. I have been what? Crucified with Christ. You're not trying anything. You're not mustering up anything. You're a dead person. And a dead person can only do one thing. He can trust. They can rest. Because you're not going anywhere. You can rest and trust in the one who can give you life. See, that's the Christian life. It's a life of faith. It's just that if there's too much of us in it, it's going to mess everything up. You know, I got done last, preaching last night, 
And I mean, this stuff is so important to me. This is where I live, guys. I live here every day. I really don't wake up saying, got to get to my small group, got to go to church, got to do this. I don't wake up thinking of that stuff. I wake up every morning, as you guys know, try my very first thought, be God. My second thought is then I, I, I thank him for life and for saving my soul. And then my next thought is, how am I going to walk with him today? That's how I think. So this is where I live. And so last night I was preaching this stuff, and I, if you think I'm intense today, I was really intense last night and almost way too serious, and sometimes that can be a hindrance because, you know, people walk away going, wow, I don't want to talk to him. And nobody came up to me after the sermon last night. <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to come up to me after the sermon last night, and so I get that. And uh, so I thought, you know, how can we communicate this in a way that, that not adds some levity to it, but might just bring it down more, more to home? And there's a great commercial that occurred during the Super Bowl in 2011. You gotta love Super Bowl commercials, right? I mean, for the most part, they're really, really good. It's because they're so expensive, and, and, and they put a lot into them. There was a great Super Bowl commercial that when I saw it in 2011, I, immediately I thought to myself, that is gonna become a sermon illustration someday, and it has today. So look up here on the screen, watch this commercial, and I think you'll get the point in just a minute. Telling you, that is you. That's you. You're saying how? I think Christians walk around all day long, all week long, all month long, and, and we're just trying to make everything happen in our own strength. We're like a little kid in a Darth Vader uniform walking around, just pushing at everything, touching everything, trying to get something to happen. It's the American way. We're out there trying to do all these things in our own strength, our own power, even though we think it's a force to be with you. We're trying to do all of our stuff. And, 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 and then, all of a sudden, once in a while, God breaks through. You've had that experience. God breaks through, like with that little kid there with the Jetta or the Passat. God breaks through, and we're stunned. I, I mean, did you notice that, that, that little kid? He was looking around like, how did that happen? He was trying to make that happen. How did it happen? When all the while, who made it happen? The Father. The Father behind the scenes is the one who made that happen. And, and you see, that's what God is trying to say to us, is that we're running around trying to make everything happen. Once in a while, God breaks through. We're stunned that he broke through. And he's saying, when are you going to understand that that could become the normal Christian life for you if you'd stop trying to make everything happen? Maybe, maybe this illustration will help. It's, again, it's a simple one, but I, I think it will will communicate the point. I want you to picture that your life is like a balloon <laughs> and that all through life you're filling up your balloon with a lot of stuff and then eventually you want to give that balloon your life over to God. So here's what most of us do. 
we fill up the balloon of our lives. And as I'm tying this, answer a question for me. Um, what's inside of this balloon right now? Yeah, I knew you'd say that. Hot air. <laughs> Said it all to other services too. Aren't you unique? Hot air. But it is hot air. Now let me ask you this. Whose hot air is it? Mine. Why? Because I filled up this balloon with myself. And that's what a lot of us do. We fill up the balloon of our lives with ourselves. Our emotions, our thoughts, our, our contributions, our, our accomplishments, our relationships, we fill up the balloon of our lives with ourselves. And then we take the balloon of our lives, and at some point we then say to God, here's the balloon of my life. Here I am, the balloon of me filled up with all of me. And then we try to live the Christian life with this balloon of us that we've given to God. And, you know, the trick of the Christian life is to somehow sort of fly, to somehow soar, right? You've read Isaiah 40 where we'll rise up with wings on eagles and, and we will walk and not grow faint and we're going to soar and we're going to fly. So we're trying to soar as a follower of Jesus, but we seem to continue to come down. And so every time we start to go up, we're feeling good, and then we go, oops, better have a quiet time. Oops, I better serve. Oops, I better give more. Oops, I better try another small group. Oops, I better do this. Oops, I better get more obedient. And eventually, I run into a lot of Christians as a pastor that just get so tired of trying to keep the ball in the air and, and never seem to soar. And you know what they do? They say, I'm done. I'm done. And I spent a lot of my pastoral career dealing with people who are done. You know, when somebody comes to my office and they say, I'm done, I'm, done. I'm tired. I'm so tired. I'm just trying and juggling, doing all of this. I smile to myself and I say, I think God's been waiting for you to say that. I think God's been waiting for you to get to the end of yourself because you've given a, a balloon filled with yourself. I think God's waiting for you to get to the point where you say enough is enough. I, I'm going to stop trying to give you a balloon that's filled completely with me. And, and what God says is he says once you get to that point, he wants to deflate your balloon filled completely with you, and he wants to fill your balloon with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And God wants to take the balloon of your life, empty it of you, fill it with him. And what happens when you fill your balloon with God? There it goes. It would be really bad if it popped right now. There are times when I'm doing weddings, you know, and they get to the unity candle, and I'm like, please don't have it go out. Please don't have it go out, because that would be really bad symbolism. But that didn't pop yet. So you get the idea. It's that when, when Christ is the one who fills our life, we no longer are having to juggle everything. What did Jesus say? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you experience that? I think what we've, we've told people in church today is come to Jesus and do all these things and add it to your plate and get all this done and da-da-da-da. And eventually people come to the pastor and say, I'm just fatigued, I'm tired, I'm exhausted. You know, I just tried to do this series uh, called Margin. It was the most talked about series all year. And all I did was talk about how we can try to get more time and financial and emotional reserves in our life. And you think I'd talk about the second coming or something like that. Because we're all so tired. And God says, I don't want you all tired. I, I want you all filled so much with me 
that you really are rising up with wings like eagles. But you got to get you out of the way. You got to get to the point where you are no longer the core. So let's close with this quote. I love this quote. You got to take this in the right way. This, this is kind of a, a hard hitting quote, but I think he's onto something here. Russell Moore, last year in Christianity Today, wrote an article, and halfway through the article, he said this. Look up here on the screen. He said, For too long, we've called unbelievers to invite Jesus into your life. He says, Jesus doesn't want to be in your life, your life's a wreck. He says, Jesus calls you into his life. Do you guys see the difference? Jesus calls you into his life. And his life isn't boring or purposeless or static. It's wild and exhilarating and unpredictable. And I think that's what scares some of us, isn't it? We don't, we don't want to turn control over him. We, we'd rather invite him into our life. Jesus, come into my life and be my personal Lord and Savior. I, I wonder what Jesus thinks when we say that. Like, you, you want me to be your little personal Lord and Savior? I don't think you get it. He goes, no, I, I, why don't you try coming into my life? I will invite you into my life that lives in and through you. And that's a vastly different thing. We're going to spend a lot of our time in Galatians late this summer and fall talking more and more about what this means. But if you can get to one place today, you'll be in a good spot. If you can get to the place today where you're ready to embrace more and more the stated reality of your position in Christ, that you've been crucified with him, it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And then start to understand the parameters of your daily journey, that the life you live now, you live by faith in the Son of God who loves you and gave himself for you. And by faith, it means you're ready to die to you and live to him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for, once again, the clarity and cogency of your word. And Lord, how you lay out for us the roadmap, if you will, for what it means to do the most important things that our lives were intended to do, in this case, walk with you and live the Christian life. And Lord, I know, I'm very aware that the things we talked about today are 10 times more easier said than done. And we've honored that and admitted that. But Lord, we still want to live this. And so Lord, each of us are at different spots here this morning. We're at different places in our walk with you. And yet, Lord, I know there's something here for every one of us when it comes to the reality of who we are in Christ and then the reality of his power being infused in and through us as we surrender more and more to you. So help us to do that, I pray. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.